You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. And so here we are, third section, right? And kind of the progression of the prayer, even though I'm preaching it in three sections, I've been holding it out to you guys that it's super important that we remember that this is not three prayers, this is one prayer, and the progression builds on itself. So Jesus opens up with this prayer for himself. He says, Father, glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Glorify me that I may glorify you. Why? Because of who I am and because of what I've done. He says, because you have given me authority over all flesh and the right to give eternal life, and I have come and I have done what you sent me to do. I emptied myself of my glory in order to do this work of redemption among men, and now restore me, Father, to my former glory, to the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. This is the opening of his prayer. And after he prays this, he turns, he looks at his disciples, he starts to pray for them, those that walked with him during his earthly ministry. And for them, he prays, Father, keep them. First, he just starts spouting, speaking back to the Father, that which the Father has always known, these eternal truths about how it is that these disciples came to be the possession of God. And he starts speaking in this really encouraging language about how it is that they became children, that they became his, that they came to faith. And flowing from that, he then says, he declares, and I kept them. I've kept them all the days that I've walked the earth, except for the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. I have not lost a one, but I'm no longer in the world. They are in the world, but I'm coming back to you. I'm not of the world. They're not of the world, but they are in the world, and I won't be anymore. And so his prayer for his disciples is that the Father would take up the activity that he had been doing himself, that he would hold on to them that he would sustain them. And and so last week we kind of preached how central and important this is. If we don't have a right understanding of how it is that we came to become the possession of God, then we will fail to understand how we remain the possession of God. And here Jesus is praying, Father, it was me who kept them, and I'm asking now that you, Father, would continue to keep them in your name. I guarded them, now you guard them. And so he was just for their security, And we said that what Jesus wants, Jesus gets, right? And so the church, the disciples, being held by God, he then starts to kind of move to uh, this, the sense of, of mission and unity. And I held a lot of that doctrine for today because he continues it as he turns his attention onto you and I. But he prays, I'm leaving the world, but I'm sending them into the world. I do not pray, Father, that you would take them out of the world, but instead I am praying that you would send them into the world just as you sent me into the world. Then he closes with this declaration that he has consecrated or sanctified himself, set himself apart in order that we would be set apart in the world. And he prays that we'd be defended from the evil one. And then he looks past the disciples in the room. That catches us up to where we are this morning. And he fast-forwards 2,000 years, and he sees Joe, and he sees Joseph, and he says to his father, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me 
through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus fixes his eyes on me. He fixes his eyes on you. He starts to see all of those who will believe. And we start to see him doubling down on some of the doctrines that he is speaking in this prayer. I mean, there's this certainty in what he's saying. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through what? Their word, the word of these 12, 11. Listen, you are here today, church, because the world has believed the word that Christ gave to the church. This is not a small thing. And this is a central point for me this morning, and I don't want you to receive it as a hard word, but I want you to receive it as a true word. You are in Christ on account of receiving his word. And he delivered his word to you as a matter of first importance by the power of the Holy Spirit through the church. Several months ago during the Advent series, I, I preached the, the, the historical testimony of the original disciples. I taught you that all but one of them, or only one of them, lived to see old age, that the rest of them died brutal deaths as they took the gospel to the nations. And similarly, in the vein of the original apostles, we have stories littered throughout church history of brutal deaths, martyrdom, as people carried the gospel message to the nations. Bringing the gospel to you is covered in the blood of Christ and the blood of the church. Not only the original disciples, I'm talking about men burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. I'm talking about men burned at the stake for opposing the Church of Rome or opposing the Church of England for trying to co-opt Christianity to leverage for power in the face of the earth. The Lord brought the gospel to your ears through much suffering. And Jesus prayed for them. And he's praying for you. I'm not asking for these guys only. I'm asking for those who will believe through their word. See, church, you will never save anyone. You're not going to save anybody. You know this, but I need you to really know it. You're not going to save anybody. But you better believe that you are going to see people saved as the Holy Spirit in you brings forth the gospel message through your lips and then lands it effectually in the hearts of the elect and brings them into new life. That's a privilege that only the church gets to see. The Holy Spirit working through the mouths of the believers to land the gospel message in the hearts of those who would believe. This is your story. If you are a Christian, you came to be a Christian through hearing and believing the gospel. It was a profound act of the Holy Spirit in you through the delivery of the gospel, through the church, through the Holy Spirit, through the death of Christ. And so he's praying for them. All of those who will believe through their word. They did it. 
he did it through them. And so you look at this history, you see the Holy Spirit in great movements through massive persecution throughout church history from the beginning until modern day. And when you look at the world today, what you see is that Christianity has continued to flourish in the face of persecution. All throughout church history, you see the gospel flourish in the face of persecution, certainly waxing and waning periods before ultimately there is a boom of faith. And wouldn't it be so? Think about this church. Christianity came into existence through persecution. Through a death on a cross was man saved. And as the evil powers of the earth bore down on those who bore the message of the gospel, the gospel flourished even as they spilled their blood. And so in parts of the world like, like China today, we actually see that the underground church is spreading the gospel with, so effectively. We're seeing a boom of Christianity spreading in parts of the world where it is most dangerous to be a Christian. And it's actually in the parts of the world like the West where it's least dangerous to be a Christian, where we are seeing the faith wane. So what I hold out to you this morning is that there's a far greater risk to the church than persecution. And it's fat and sugar and sex and entertainment and money and power and status and ability and air conditioning. There's a day that comes where you can cozy up to the world so, and the world can be so good to you that it becomes very difficult to say, I count it all as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And then, well, there's a generation that is willing to spill their blood to bring the gospel to us. We're unwilling to suffer a little embarrassment to bring the gospel to another, unwilling to suffer a little discomfort to bring the gospel to another. Jesus prays for you with his eyes fixed on those who will believe through the word. He asks this, that we may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that you also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The central message of today is unity. The prayer that Christ prayed for unity in the church, that we would be one. And when we talk about oneness, we're going to talk about it on two levels. We're going to talk about unity with one another, unity within the church and all that she is and all that she does. But then way more important than that, we're going to talk about unity with Christ, unity with him, oneness in spirit. In other words, the engine behind all that the church is and does runs. See, Jesus is praying for us that we would be one just as he and the Father are one, and he demonstrated for us through his teaching all throughout this gospel account what that meant. He would say things like, not my words, but his words. Not my will, but his will. I only do the things that I see the Father doing. This is the way that he described his unity with the Father. And this is the way, and so when he says, just as we are, I, I'm praying that they would be. It's the same. Unity in mission. Unity in message. Unity in action, 
unity in spirit, unity in word, that we would be one. This comes from Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Jesus is praying for unity within the church, unity of mission, unity of message, unity in spirit, unity in will, that we would be singularly oriented around the gospel message of Jesus Christ. He said it in this prayer, you are still here because he prayed that the Lord, would, that the Lord God would not take you out of the world because he desired to send you into it just as he went into it. You are still here. The reason why the trumpet hasn't sounded and Jesus hasn't said enough and, and, and all of that is because the number stored up in the secret heart of God has not been saved. There is a multitude. I mean, think about what's on Jesus' heart here. Why does he pray for our unity? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. He's settled for nothing less than the nation's. He wants the world. And you can almost see in Jesus as he's praying this, I, I wouldn't want to invent a doctrine, so, so guard your ears as I say this. There's an in, something's happening to Jesus as he's praying. You can see it. Because he leaves his moment. He says back in, in, in uh, the previous section that I, um, that I am not in the world while he's standing with those who he says are in the world. He's already in his mind during this prayer somewhere else. And then in this portion of the prayer, he's going to pray, and I'm asked that, you would, that they would be with me where I am while they're standing there with him. Jesus has gone somewhere else in his mind, and I believe he's been carried there by the Spirit, as the, as the Holy Spirit, who has carried him all throughout his earthly ministry, is preparing him for that final hour. And he is seeing with a greater clarity that which is to come. He is seeing his glory. He is seeing his throne room. He is seeing that place from which he came. He's preparing himself to be restored to the glory that he vacated to come for us. And he says that the world may believe that you have sent me. Let's bring them in. He says, I'm bringing them with me. And through them, I'm going to go get the nations. I mean, come on. That's something you get to see because of the Holy Spirit in you. A.W. Tozer wrote, it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And this quote resonated with me about a year before I moved down here to be a part of Planting Mercy's Door. I wrote a song and it went something like this. 
Lord, help me give up on my American dream where I build a white picket fence around a front yard that no one's saved in, where my comfort is king and I'm stacking things that I can die with, where I store up stocks and bonds and mutual funds while my brothers live in poverty. You see the things I will do in vanity. You see the things I will do for security. How did I end up here sinking roots so deep so you won't move me? building my own palace where I can be king. Father, take it from me and leave my hands with nothing if it means that I would see that you're everything. Pry my fingers open, let my hands be broken because the promises you've spoken are greater. Still, I paddle up the river to steal gifts from my giver. I need you to deliver the bitter pill. I'm crying out to you, Father, soften my heart. Father, I want your living water. Clothe me in your armor because my cry from clay to potter is break me. He must break a man before he will love his neighbor. How long Will you bear the name of Christ and bear the spirit of Christ within you and look across the street to the lost and push it out of mind. He came for you. Your missional God came for you. Christ Jesus came for you and he said, just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. You cannot produce what I am talking about here. It is only through pleading with God that he can sufficiently break the heart of a man to love his neighbor. You must understand the lengths to which your God went to ransom you before you will care at all about the depths that he will need to reach to save your neighbor. We are to have unity in mission. The whole ransom church of God is meant to look like one in the way that it functions in mission, and the way that it looks is meant to be the way that Jesus looked in mission. The way that the apostles looked in mission, the way the first century and second century church looked in mission, it looks like counting it all as lost to bring the gospel to those who will believe by hearing. It is a unique privilege to be able to join in with the ranks of the saints to march on the nations bearing this message of good news, of salvation by faith alone in Christ, not by anything good in us, but by something good in God. And so verse 22, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So again, in order that the world would know that you sent me, in order that the world would know the love that you have loved me with, in order that the world would know the love with which you love them, make them one, perfectly one. So we're not just talking about unity and mission. This is, this is not merely saying, hey, get in the game. 
Start, start behaving the way that the church has behaved in the past. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying be compelled by the same love which the Father poured out on the Son. Jesus says that's the love that he has for you, and that love compels you to go. You must fix your eyes on the message, the one message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only it can produce gospel action. More specifically, only he can produce gospel action. His message is not ever separated from his person. So when we talk about this unity, on the one hand, I want to caution you. I'm not talking about striving for unity. We're not talking like a football team. You know, like one team, one mission. Lots of people can unite over any number of things by just wanting it badly enough. Whole corporations are built on a unity of a mission statement. I'm not talking about self-willed mission or self-willed unity. I'm not talking about why can't we all just get along. I am talking, what Jesus is talking about is perfectly one just as we are one. You can't do that, church. You cannot do what he is talking about. Only he could do that. And that's why he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. What glory? Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. How can Jesus say, the glory that you've given to me, I give to them? Is God contradicting himself when he gives it to Jesus? No. Because when the Father gives his glory to the Son, he's not giving his glory to another. He's giving the glory to himself. But now the Son is saying, the glory you've given to me, I give to them. Can he do that? Yes, he can. How? I in them. The Holy Spirit, my friends, he can't give the glory to you, but he can indwell you. And by unity with you, by making you one with him, you share in his glory as a partaker in his glory because you have been made alive in him. This is where we pull that doctrine. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. Let me make the argument that our union with Christ by the Holy Spirit is what he means when he says that he shares his glory with us. 1 Corinthians 6, 17, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 1 John 4, 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. Colossians 1, 27, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Romans 8, verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. God has, caused, has chose to make it known the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
you are made one with God because he literally indwells you. In several conversations and in several sermons in a row now, I keep bringing this up because it's so important. What makes you a Christian? When you ask somebody, hey, what makes you a Christian? If they start talking about something they did or something that they believed, they're getting it wrong. They're at least describing it wrong. If it doesn't start with, he did this, then we're describing it wrong at the very least, or we're truly not Christian. Many people on the face of the earth will say, didn't I do this, 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 and this? That's dangerous game to play. If I say, what makes you a Christian? You start telling me what you do or what you did. That's dangerous. What makes you a Christian is something that happened to you, something that happened in you, something initiated by God, something carried out by God, something sustained by God. It is the person of God in the Holy Spirit indwelling you, baptizing you in the Holy Spirit, taking you from death to life, putting to death the flesh, and rising you again as a new creation, right? This is like supposed to be Christianity 101. What makes me a Christian is the Holy Spirit in me. But then I ask you, well, how do you know the Holy Spirit's in you? And it reveals this really weak doctrine in the Western church that we just really don't believe the Holy Spirit's a person. We don't believe that the Holy Spirit is God. We don't believe that the Holy Spirit is in us, that the Holy Spirit does things. And when he is doing things in us, we don't credit the Holy Spirit. We just take credit for ourselves. Jesus said that we are going to be perfectly one because he is in us. I in them and you in me makes us perfectly one. So what about when we don't act like we're one? Guess what? We are. You are one with your spouse, right? You guys know the doctrine of two becoming one flesh in marriage. If you have a fight with your wife tonight, are you no longer one? No, you're still one, right? We're not talking about a unity that the church produces. We're talking about a unity that is true about the church because we are united in Christ by his Holy Spirit, all attached to the same vine. So we can't produce this, but we do enjoy it. You are one. The invitation is to act like it. And there are, of course, so many ways that I could could preach how you might act like we are one. I want to hold out to you this morning that it's not two things. We're not talking about general ecumenical thought, that we just pretend to be one by going along to get along, and we just act like everybody is one of us. Like, that's not true. There are really only two buckets in Scripture that allow division, that call for division, even. You might say there are more. I believe they all fit into two buckets. One of them says, if somebody carries a different gospel, have nothing to do with him. Okay? So if somebody has a, is not subscribing to the same gospel as us, then they're not one with us. They're the mission field. They're the ones that we're here to bring the true gospel to. And the other one is the unrepentant sinner. Jesus in Matthew talks about, uh, he, he gives us the outline for church discipline where he says, when your brother sins, bring to him his error in order that you may gain your brother. And if you will not repent, 
then go and grab another brother, and the two of you go to him, and if still he will not repent, then bring him before the church, that the church may plead with him to be restored, and if still he will not repent, then you are to treat him as an unbeliever, because he's now given you sufficient cause by his refusal to repent, despite the pouring out of the grace of God through the church to see him restored. He doubles down, and he clings to his sin, says to treat him as an unbeliever. He's been given you sufficient cause to doubt whether or not he's one among you, that's a hard word, and it's a sermon for another day. Maybe you've seen that done poorly in your past. I'm sorry if that's true. But, I mean, what makes you a Christian? Well, that, that, well what, is your, what is your participation in that? Well, that you would repent and believe. Repent and believe. This is the message of John the Baptist, and this was the message of Jesus in his earthly ministry. Repent and believe. So if they don't believe the gospel, if they believe something else, they're not one with you. And if they won't repent... They're not one with you, but, for, so, but everybody else, all those who repent and believe, all those who are, who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, they are one with you. And so if like Peter and Paul, you need to squabble on occasion, you do it within the bounds of unity, with the goal of restoration and edification of the body, building one another up. In other words, if I come up here and I say something that's super wonky to you guys, and it's like, and I'm out there outside of orthodoxy and I'm preaching something weird, you guys pull me aside and you say, listen, we've got the same Jesus, same faith, same, in, in unity, I rebuke you, brother. And then I repent. And if I won't repent, you bring up another brother. And you show me my error, and then I repent. Or you bring me before the whole church, and then I repent. That conflict within the church is unto unity, not unto division. And so rather than holding out to you all of the different ways that you can pursue unity, what I want you to know is it doesn't mean avoiding conflict. It means conflicting unto unity, not unto division. And it could mean any number of different, there's too many scenarios to do it in a sermon. This has to happen in GC. But you are one, so act like it. Fight like you're married. Like you got to sleep together later. Fight unto restoration. Fight unto unity. With the goal of seeing your brother restored and the goal of bringing yourself unto repentance as well. So he's given his glory to us by taking up residence in us that we may be one even as they are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So now Jesus prays, and I also pray that they'd be with me where I am. Where is he? I don't know, really. He's like right in the room, but I think he's there. I think he's seeing the glory that is to come when he prays this. So I want them to be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Colossians 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Whatever Jesus asks for, he gets, doesn't he? You will be with him to see his glory. 
in this light and momentary affliction where we walk by faith and not by sight, we do so with the assurance that we will behold his glory with our eyes. There will be a day where we look back on those days where we walked by faith as a unique privilege held out to the church. A day will come where there will be no more faith. Only sight. We will never see God work in the way that he is working now, ever again. The way that he has invaded darkness, it is a privilege for us to see him work in this way. It is a sliver of eternity. And we come to understand this from the privileged position as indwelled children of God. It's a real honor to be invited to participate in that. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. It is Jesus Christ who makes his name known to you, church. And he's going to continue to make it known through the Holy Spirit. I don't need to belabor to add. I just need to tell you what he said and what he's saying and what he will continue to say. And he testifies this name to you in order that he would hold you, not just in the name of God, but what Jesus says here, in the love of God. The love which the Father has for the Son, Jesus says, belongs to you because you know him. And to know him is to behold his glory. So Jesus does the most loving thing that he can do, and he says, glorify me. Then he pours out the Spirit on you that you could partake in his glory. He gives you the assurance that you will stand before him and behold it with sight on that great day of his return. And it will all be to this end, to make known to us the love of God. And church, it just comes down to that. I mean, when I think about the three sections of this prayer, it might be aptly summed up like this. Father, I'm coming home. I love you and you love me. He opens his eyes and he looks out at us. And gosh, I love them. I'm bringing him with me. He's bringing you with him. And with, by his spirit in you, all I'm calling you into is that you open yourself to hear his love for others in order that you might invite others to come along too. That we would be united in his mission to gather a remnant from every tribe, tongue, and nation to go gather the elect from your streets. Listen, I want you guys to have a confidence as you do it. There's so much good doctrine in this prayer. But here's the thing. Paul believed this stuff more than I do, and it compelled him to go. He so believed that those who God foreknew he would effectually call through the preaching of the gospel, that he went and preached the gospel indiscriminately, knowing that it would land on fertile soil when the Lord said, you, 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 you. 
so we can go confidently and do the same. We preach the gospel because it is certain that it will land on all those whom the Lord chooses to save. Wouldn't we want to see that? Thank God that someone did that for you. Thank God that someone did that for me. And I really do mean thank God. Don't go in your own strength. Don't go in your own power. Go in the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells you. And then go to GC and tell all the great stories about what you're seeing happening and motivate and compel one another to all get off the sidelines and to participate in this great work of redemption that has traveled 2,000 years to get to you. And you feel like, oh, that's a long time. Listen to this. I was talking a, a year or two ago to my son. If an average human lifetime is 75 years, church, just for easy math, and someone's born the day that Jesus died, lives 75 years, and then he dies, then someone's born the day he dies, lives 75 years, and then he dies. Someone's born that day, lives 75 years, and then he dies in succession. 28 human lifetimes have passed since Jesus Christ graced this ground with his feet. 28. That is nothing when you consider that we started with a guy on a cross and a band of ragamuffins around him and it reached your ears. This thing works. The gospel saves. 28 lifetimes have passed, and look. Mascuda, Illinois, from Jerusalem, by foot. You can get in the game because the Spirit's way mightier than anything you could do. Let's pray to that end.